Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello? Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi, my name is Simon Brooks and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems and wisdom, and sometimes, sometimes, a story or two. I'm glad that you're here. I am one lucky duck. I know Bill Harley not well, but I know him, and we get on. And I love his work. My kids grew up listening to his CDs. I have such admiration for a man who can be telling stories to young children and then slip into a story for the adults in the audience and get right back to the kids without missing a beat or losing one person in the show. Bill knows Len Cabral. Len is a bit of a folk hero in New England. I bumped into him once when we were both performing at the same school about a thousand years ago. I never got to see him as the audience, the families and kids, were rotating through rooms a bunch of artists and poets were in. I've seen videos of his work though, and he loves working with kids. Find a video of him working and tell me I am wrong. How lucky am I? I got to interview both Bill and Len together in the same room. Now this interview lasted a long time. I have edited it down into three, yes, three episodes. This is the first. We'll take a break and then we'll finish up with the interview with Bill and Len in the following episode. And then the third episode, well, Bill had to leave, so I got some extra alone time with Len. It was amazing. I have so much respect for both these human beings. They are very well respected in the community, very smart and well read. I will say no more. Let's get on. So here we are in Len Cabral's house in Rhode Island, and it is a really nice house. <laughs> I love it here. Lots of pictures on the walls, family photos and stuff. It's, it's remarkable. And I'm sitting here in his living room with this beautiful table, and with the beautiful and charming Bill Harley and the wonderful smiley Len Cabral. <laughs> and I'm very excited to be here. So thanks for having me here, Len. Thanks for hosting sure, it. You're welcome. Thanks to both of you for letting me do this. Yeah. Happy to do it. Yeah. So um, who wants to go first? Let Bill go first. All right. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's, I'm the guest. Right. <laughs> it's your house. I'm the guest. Yeah. <laughs> So what was what was what was your life like when you were growing up as as a young Bill Hart? Um So I grew up in the in Midwest in Ohio and Indiana, and um, uh, it was kind of a classic middle class white <laughs> growing up. You know, I, I, I was in the baby boom generation. I I was born in a small town in Ohio. Uh, lived there till I was seven. Um, and my dad was uh, was a lawyer, and he uh, actually ran for mayor and lost by a couple of votes to the dry cleaner. Uh, <laughs> but he was kind of an FDR Democrat. He was a New Deal Democrat, and he didn't really fit in there. And that, 
So then we moved to Indianapolis when I was seven, and I lived in one of those neighborhoods where there were problems. And, and Lenny's neighborhood, I think, was a little bit like this: is uh, a little more ethnically diverse. Uh, there must have been forty kids within a half mile of my house, or quarter, even a quarter mile of my house. So nice. it was just we just roamed as a group. We played games all the time. Uh, it was down, I was lived down, the, there was a creek, that's what we called it in Indiana, down the, at the end of the street, which I used to hang in, wander, fish, and get mucky, and, you know, climb, climb trees, and almost kill myself, and <laughs> smoke my first cigarette, and, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> so that was a very kind of, uh, kind of classic growing up. And I was really into sports. I was I was good. I was never like really good, but you know, being in America, you know, it was football in the fall and basketball in the winter and baseball in the summer, and that's kind of that's kind of what I live for. Uh, my mom is a children's writer, so and my dad started as a lawyer, but he ended up being an editor uh, for a publishing company. So language was always really important to us, not so much oral. My mom was a my mom was a very funny person, and she but she didn't come out with these stories. She had my dad was dad was pretty quiet, um, simmering. I'd say he was a simmering kind of dad. <laughs> um, uh, but language is really important to us, you know. It was and the the grammar was always really important. But there were books around, and and uh, I had to take piano lessons. I had to take those piano lessons, and then when I was in high school. Um, my dad got a job in New York. He wanted to get out of Indiana. He was he was in the city middle. Well, he this job was in New York in, in publishing, and he he was sick of being surrounded by very conservative people in our neighborhood who thought that the Vietnam War was great and that you know black people ought to stay where they belonged. And uh, he it, I think it just drove him crazy. crazy. So he got a job in New York, and we moved to Connecticut and into a very well-heeled uh, suburb, which was the culture shock for me. Uh, and I uh, lived there for three years before I went off to college. So, but other than my, uh, I mean, you look back on who you are because your parents and the way they looked at the world definitely had an influence on me. But I just had this kind of a the you know what people call free-range childhood. Yeah, was that the same for you, Len? Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, in the woods, swinging from trees. Yeah, I was. I grew up in a very diverse uh, community. It's uh, with my mom, my two brothers at the time. Uh, I was born in Boston, but my parents separated, so she moved back to the town that she grew up in, which is North Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. And it was uh, where her parents settled when they came over from Cape Verde, and so they were farmers, and all their all my friends' grandparents knew each other, and they were from Armenia, they were Italian, they were French, Bulgarian, um, Armenian, uh, and so all those kids grew up together. There was, and they were Cape Verdeans, and so uh, we just all grew up together. We, we learned how to swear in different languages. <laughs> You know, it was pretty easy, you know. We learned to swear in Portuguese, Armenian, Italian, um, because that's what we were all... Right. And, and just like Bill, we played sports. 
we ran, we had ponds that we swam yeah, in, and when it ice skated yeah. in, we had fields to build forts in. It was really um, a great childhood to growing up, just being outside, eating fruits, and everybody had fruit trees. Oh. They had gardens, there was cherries, there were plums, there were grapes, we had grapevines. So we got up in the morning and in the summer, we just left the house and didn't come back till sunset because we could eat off the trees, we could, you know, hang out all day, play basketball or build forts. So what was your favorite sport growing up? Um, I think basketball, basketball and football. Yeah, real football. And I, football and I played them both. <laughs> What's that? We didn't know what soccer was at that point. No, we didn't no, know. We didn't know that, that was that was. <laughs> I remember mean, soccer. It's, it's yeah. a weird sport. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah so we just. Oh, uh, I know it is. But. Played all sorts of sports and fish, and um, and I like to think that you know the. All my friends' grandparents and some of their parents were first generation here, and many of the old timers all said well, they're from the old country, you see. And so, all these adults around us, no matter where we are from, they said, Oh, in the old country, you used to do it this way. In the old country, we grew corn here. In the old country, we made wine like this. I thought the old country was a place where all these old people came from. <laughs> so thank God they taught geography in school. <laughs> Well, the other thing about Lenny, though, too, is like, I mean, you, you don't see it sitting here, but Len's, Len comes out of this incredibly rich family that that is all, I mean, his brother, one brother's across the street, one's down the street, his oh, really? 100-year-old yeah. mom is down the street, and if you go out to their place on uh, at the foot of the Cape, it's like, they're just cabrals and varellas <laughs> all over the place, so it's like, yeah. we see, Lenny just is, I mean, I got three first cousins that I never talked to. That was that's my extent of my family. It was a very. Do you have any siblings? I have two: an older brother and a younger brother. Okay. Uh, but Lynn is like, man, you throw a rock, you hit a Cabral, you know, and it's <laughs> true. It changes the way. I mean, that's one of the things I love getting to know Lynn because it's like it changes the way you see things and also the way you you talk and you and your your understanding what what culture is. So that's it's it's very different from. This kind of nuclear, this small nuclear family that you know we're going to go out on our own, and if we have to move around to do that, you know, as opposed to being raised in this culture, yes, of, yeah. yeah, it's it's different. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So, going back to your mother, who's one hundred and one, you said one hundred and one. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it should awesome. be one hundred and two in uh, October. Yeah, be, uh, October. Yeah. So was she, was she a huge influence on you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, like I said, my parents divorced, and so my mother raised us. Um, we'd go visit my father, who lived up in Boston, put us on the train, go up, get off at Back Bay. Yeah. <laughs> we little kids get on the train. Don't forget, get off at Back Bay. We'd get on the train, and every time the train stopped, we'd say to the conductor, "This Back Bay? <laughs> Not yet, boys. <laughs> this Back Bay? Not yet, boys. <laughs> Cool. And so my father would pick us up at the train station and drive us back home at the end of the weekend and stuff. So we were close to my father. Um, but my mother raised us and, you know, she was, uh, she ruled the roost and she built herself a house for the four of us. Wow. And uh, I literally built a house. <laughs> and uh, that's where we grew up. We grew up in North Providence in a little cape that she built along with neighbors and friends of hers and us boys. Uh, build a house that we grew up in. And you said that your family were, your grandparents were, were far, came from farming. 
uh, well, they came from the, the they came from the Cape Verde Islands, right. and um, a lot of Cape Verdeans came to America because they were whalers. The men okay. were mostly whalers, uh, and they settled here in New England. And uh, my on my father's side, his father was a whaler. Okay. Uh, his grandfather, rather, his grandfather was a whaler, Ben Varela, and he settled in Wayham in Rochester, uh, down the Cape, to, mm -hmm. to the Cape. And my mother's parents settled in North Providence, and they were farmers. Okay. And everybody in that community farmed. They had. So did you all have in your gardens? Were you growing a lot of vegetables and stuff? Oh, like corn! That? My father, my grandfather had rows of. We used to go and I play hide and seek in the corn. Oh, nice. because, you know, and um, they had goats and they had. You know, cows, uh, chickens. You know, I had chickens, and uh, but all everybody around there had goats, and some raised rabbits. Everybody raised chickens, huh. and so you'd get fresh eggs, and you'd get, walk up there get milk with the cream on top. Yeah, you know, like that. Uh, so it was. Uh, you go up there now, you, you think I'm telling you a story because it's all so built up. Yeah. You know, but before it was fields and farms yeah. and ponds. It's the same with the town I grew up in in the UK, Worcester. You know, mm -hmm. when I used to drive, you know, I worked in London for a while, and I drive back to London, and you know, every time, every year I go back at Christmas time, it would be like there's more housing developments with yeah. farmland. Yep. So, so how did you? So, were there any storytellers that influenced you into? Oh, oh well, my uh, my mother's mother, she. Was a musician. She played the violin. She played the piano. Played the guitar. She sang. She was uh, a midwife, um, and she was. Uh, <laughs> she smoked a pipe. Uh, she uh, made moonshine and wine. No way. And um, she was quite quite the character. Yeah. And um, <laughs> funny story. She'd call the house, and when we picked the phone up, it would be her on the phone. She'd say. Put your mother on the phone. We'd say, "Oh, hi, Mamai." She'd go, "Mamai, hi, Mamai. How are you? I'm still here. Put your mother on the phone." <laughs> See, that? <laughs> that was it. You know, put your mother on the phone. I'm still here. Put your mother on the phone. <laughs> okay, Mamai. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> but she was, she was a real character, and um, you know, she raised uh, five, five children. Oh wow! Uh, along with my grandfather, on my mother's side. And so she was, uh, you know, she taught us how to dance, taught all the kids how to dance, and um, she sang. She played the guitar and sang. I don't remember the story. See, she spoke Creole, and um, I could understand some Creole, but I never spoke it. I never learned to speak it. And, um, and you know something? It's interesting because all my friends who were from either Armenia, uh, Bulgarian, Italian, it was, at the time growing up, we were like uh, told to learn English, speak English. To, you know, almost be almost be made a feel ashamed that your grandparents spoke another language, and it was just the time period. Now I look back at that and say that was terrible yeah. to make it feel that you know, it should be embarrassed when your grandmother speaks to you in a foreign tongue, in your mother language, and you're you're embarrassed because your friends are saying, "What's she saying? What's she saying?" Right. And um, and that whole generation, we lost the language, right? Because we were made to feel embarrassed by it, and uh, so I always encourage kids now to, if you can learn a second language, if your parents yeah. speak a language, jump on it, just jump on it. 
think that's going to yeah. be more and more important oh, yes. down the road. For, of course. Yeah, you know, I mean, I wish I could speak fluently in Creole. Oh, I know. Yeah. My grandmother spoke it. That's all she spoke to us in. And she spoke a little broken English and stuff. She could speak English, but she mostly spoke Creole. And uh, she sang in Creole. So I grew up in a house with a lot of music. My uncles you, played the play violin. Music? I don't play. I'm trying to teach myself, and I'm trying to, trying to get him to teach me to play the uh, ukulele. Uh, so, uh, a little bit yeah, every day. That's what I do, a little bit every day. So I love music, but I, I never took any music lessons, though, you know, my uncles played music and Cape Verdean bands. They played the viola, they played the guitar, piano, and, uh, but I never put the time into learning music. Yeah. yeah. But you, you learned piano, though. I played piano when I was in, um, I took piano lessons when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was uh, fifth or sixth grade, I started to play piano, uh, trumpet. Um, I played trumpet through high school. I wasn't that good. I was a good musician, but I was not a good trumpet player, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, and then uh, senior in high school, I went back and started to study piano kind of on my own without somebody telling me you should take piano lessons. Mm-hmm. And I uh, got a guitar, and so um, I didn't really start to play guitar till I was eighteen. Um, and you know, we took lessons on and off, but mostly it was I was laughing with uh, another friend of mine about trying to figure out chords on a guitar on a song. And now it's so much easier. You can you can find any chord you want, but like you just listen to a track over and over and over again to try to understand what they were doing. You know, and to yeah. figure out what the chord progression was, or what, like, how did they do that? You know, and it would just be this, this really painstaking thing of trying to figure out what to do that. And then maybe you'd learn from somebody else to show you a lick, or it's like, how did you do that? But so it was kind of seat of the pants. I took some. Probably gave you a good ear, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. My ear was well. Actually, the story of the piano growing up was that I had this. Learning music is hard, and it was hard for me, and I was, I was pretty ADD and growing up, and still kind of am, but uh, we had a piano teacher would come to the house, and uh, my mom liked him because he came to the house. Uh, Mr. Curtis is like, I don't think he got paid anything, you know? But he would play the piece for me, and I couldn't read music, and so I would listen, and then during the week, I would figure out what it sounded like. Okay. And then I would play it, and he'd say, no, look, that's a G, that's a G, and I'd say, oh, you need to hit the note, and then I'd play it right, you right. know? And after months and months, finally one day he said, what note is that? And I was like, I don't know, what note is that? And he was like, he realized I had not been reading the music at all, and he, to his discredit, he was furious. Oh. He got up and he went into the kitchen, and he said, I'm not teaching him. He's, he's not learning from me, I'm leaving. And he left, and my mom said, that was too bad. Because he came to the house. <laughs> so I was at an early age. I was I was off the page. I was just trying to figure out what the music sounded like and, and, and figure it out. You know. Can you read dots now? Oh yeah, I can. I'm not a great reader, but I can. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I did. And uh, when I was in, I I studied jazz piano. Uh, but then starting senior year and I took some jazz comp classes and I have actually recently too and uh, studied theory a little theory in music in, in uh, college um, so I kind of got a 
Just enough to do some damage is the way I look at it. <laughs> Just enough to make sure that you know how much you don't know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Music is so huge. And I, yes. so one of the things I realized, I think, I think every musician feels illegitimate in the sense that there's something that they don't know. Like classical musicians, like, God, I wish I could just sit down and play. And great, you know, blues players are like, well, I can't really read music. I don't understand why this works, but this is what I do. Right. You know, because it's just such a big... Well, except for like Yo-Yo Ma and Bobby well, McFerrin. Right. You know, everybody else is illegitimate. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you think us drummers feel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there's a lot of jokes about that. <laughs> there's a lot of jokes about us drummers. <laughs> <laughs> or so, bass players or violists right. or whatever you know yeah, and the banjo players guitar well, players right? manager, yeah, it's, it never ends yeah. so how, how did you get into this I mean I'm, I'm not going to assume anything I'm just going to let you tell me how, how, where these stories come from that you tell and make songs about well um, so when I, I started to write songs and uh, I, I think because I was really language oriented this is when college I started to write songs. I always felt like I was I always liked appreciated performers that would contextualize their work, you know? And and so I just felt like storytelling ought to go with music. You know, and the truth is traditionally it it yeah. always has been. You know, we've they music was separated only for financial reasons, only so somebody could make money on it. That's why we just listen to music today instead of listening to the warp and woof of story and song. I, I think it was just so as we commercialized. Um, uh, so I just, that just seemed natural to me. And so when I was in college and, you know, I kind of came up with all the singer-songwriter stuff from from Dylan and Eric Anderson to, you know, to onward through, you know, to Jackson Brown and all those guys. And that was kind of what I was really interested in. But then I started going back and studying more traditional material, you know, so I listened to Pete Seeger and more traditional ballad people and um, became aware that there was this whole body of story that went along with it. So for me, uh, those two felt like they should always go together. And where'd um, you get the nutty stories from? The what? The crazy stories. I mean, no, nutty Yeah, stories. well, I think it was one of those things where, you know, it, it, it's interesting. When we look back at that period in the late 70s, early 80s, and when things were really starting to, this storytelling renaissance or whatever it was, was happening, I think people were trying to find out. The question was always what my voice was. Now, I grew up, the other thing, the other part of my training was listening to stuff like, I can't say his name anymore, but Bill Cosby was a huge influence on mm -hmm. me. And he was a huge influence on my work. And, and his, his delivery and what you could talk about. Uh, and we grew up listening to uh, the, my dad had all these Stan Freeberg records mm -hmm. who was a who was a radio uh, personality and he'd do these shows and he was hilarious he'd do all these radio skits and uh, so we would listen to him and all those people and so I mean the other thing is in school I just was always looking for I would get bored in class I'd figure out what's going on pretty fast I was, it was good in school but then I would get bored and so I would just kind of look for a place to say something funny. So that was that was inherent in what I was, you know, if you're not going to be the smartest, I was pretty smart, but I was not interested in doing what I was supposed to do. And I wasn't going to be a great athlete, you know, I wasn't big, I was pretty small. And it's like, okay, maybe it could be funny. So, and I think that's true for a lot of people that use humor. That was like, they just became 
I don't think I was a class clown, but I was the class color commentator. Um, uh, and so that was just always part of it, you know. I, one of the things about, it's, you know, your greatest strength is always your greatest uh, weakness is that as a performer, when you say something and it's funny, then people laugh. And so you got that response back that you know you're there with them. Yeah. You know, when you do something that's long or that's more serious or requires real attention, it's quiet for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, that can kind of make you nervous. I'm more comfortable now with that. I, I can, I can, I can rest. I'm, I'm easy with that yeah. uh, now. But yeah. the thing about, I mean, you think about traditional tellers always doing something to check, yeah. make sure if their audience is doing right. that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. all that. Mm -hmm. And so, and if you listen to humorous tellers, you're going to find those same rhythms. Yeah, they have, they have a sense of the, a pattern of response about how that goes, even if they're not conscious of themselves they have that sense of that so uh and then there were just a couple stories that you i was experimenting i first started telling folk tales but then i would start to tell things that happened to me and they felt i think every storyteller if they're going to be really good they got to find the voice that they tell stories in mm -hmm. that they feel comfortable that they get seated in right and that their their authentic voice comes out and like telling stories about growing up, especially since I was working with kids and families, it just was, was, I remember, I think the first story that just like, I can do this is that Mrs. Nottingham about my teacher turning 50 years old, my third grade teacher, and I find out and I tell everybody and she's pissed off. And she does not want people celebrating her being 50 years old. <laughs> and I just remember like the first couple of times I told that, it was like, I'm just present here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I am just, we're just sharing this here together. And it's the uh, opposite for me. I can't do that. But when I'm telling fairy tales, yeah. it's like, I'm there. You know, yeah. there's this magic that, that just... Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's what you're looking for is that presence where we're all part of something, you know, and that wall, that wall kind of drops between yeah. whether you're trusting the audience, but we're just conscious that it's just us here. Yeah. Uh, and that's, and then you got that little voice, the little party that's watching you, going, "Holy crap! Look at this, man! This is this is awesome." <laughs> Sometimes you want to flick that away. Yes, I know. You kind of, yeah, yeah. You can't be too impressed with that. It's like, yeah, no. You got actually. There's there's three of me on stage at least at all moments. Yeah. So, so Len, how did you? What led you down the path to storytelling? Well, um, I had teachers that would read aloud to me in class. And I love that. I love hearing people read aloud. I love to read aloud myself, even if I'm by myself, you know. Because um, something about reading aloud helps the words come out, come back, and helps me remember a story when I'm trying to learn a story. Yeah. Um, but it was in elementary school that teachers that read aloud to me, and then I get a little older, they made me read aloud, which is always frightening for a kid to read aloud in class. But I got over it. And then I was fortunate enough to, in high school, I had an English teacher, Miss Sally Devonish. And she made us read, she turned us on a good prose, you know, Macbeth. And, and I, I went crazy with Macbeth. I just loved it. And I, I, was, I spent more time in the locker room and the basketball court and football field than I did in the library when I was in high school. But I took Macbeth to the football field, to the practice. Oh, wow. And I'd be, I'd be reading Macbeth before practice and go out there and 
be practicing. I say, would you have done this? How can I say I did it? Never shake that gory locks in me. <laughs> or somebody would fumble the ball and I would say, not his hat, all his spent, desire has gotten without content. <laughs> and my, my, my other guys on the team would say, where's that from? I got this book. So before games, we'd be reading Macbeths because we'd want to get out there on the field and quote Macbeth. And so the defensive end on that side, linebacker on the side. Be, and so we'd freak people out, you know. We'd, out damn spot, out damn spot. <laughs> and so it became fun. Yeah. And, and, you know, I grew up going to the Newport Jazz Festival, Newport Folk Festival. So I saw... You know, Miles, I saw Nina Simone, um, I saw Bob Dylan when, when he went electric, uh, Donovan, Mississippi John Hurt, Taj Mahal. So I grew up listening to these blues musicians, these, and this is when you had albums that all the lyrics are on the back of the album. Yeah. And so you learn the song. I, I still, I didn't play a guitar, but I do remember strumming the guitar, play, <laughs> pretending I could play, and, but I knew all the words. and So it got me into writing, because I was reading so much, so much of this, these these songs, and especially uh, Dylan and Donovan and Patrick Sky and Taj, Richie Havens, seeing all those musicians in um, in Newport, and then growing up, being influenced by comedians like Red Fox, uh, Richard Pryor, um, Jimmy Durante, uh, Red Skelton, Clumpy Little Hopper, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I realized later in life how influenced I was by the, these these comedians, and along with Bill Cosby, uh, when it came to telling stories. Because sometimes when I'm telling a story, I can hear Jimmy Durante in my voice. You know, in some ways, I think that the storytelling that we're talking about really does owe a, to, a, a nod to uh, vaudeville. Because mm-hmm. yeah. we were watching... You know, we were watched Jackie Gleason and all those guys, oh. and there was they. Those are the people that came out of vaudeville, and so we developed that notion of bits. I think. Yes. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that the other day because I was I watched this. this um, he was a magician, but he was really bad at it, and so he took uh, Frankie Howard. Yeah. yeah and he turned yeah. it into a comedy. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's and it. I was I was for some strange reason it popped up on YouTube when I was watching something else and I was like I haven't seen this guy since I was like sixteen yeah and I was listening to it I was like oh my gosh yeah. there's mm-hmm. bits of me yeah I've drawn from this and mm-hmm. then I started listening to some of the other comedians that I watched uh, yeah. who were all from that Jonathan Winters yeah Jonathan right? Winters oh man and, I love and, uh, Jonathan Winters so Jonathan Winters you could pick up a a, a, a dish and do funny. 15 funny things with just a dish. Yeah. Uh, but then you look at Jonathan Winters and then there was Robin Williams. Right. And you go, oh, Robin Williams is definitely influenced by Jonathan Winters. They're right. both out there. Yeah. And so we, we are influenced by so many of these performers that came before us. Vaudeville, uh, you know, you mentioned Jackie Gleason, uh, Norton. Norton, yeah. 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 I mean, mo- as far as movement goes in the story, you know, uh, to me, a movement means a whole lot in the story. Too much is distracting, but a little goes a long way. Yeah. But you look at Norton. He was a dancer, you know? and Art Carney. Uh, Art Carney, Art Carney. Yeah. And how how he moved and how, you know, his vaudeville movements. And um, that influenced me when I started telling stories. Like or Dick Van Dyke or Danny Kaye, yeah. right, all right. those guys. Yes. Were, they were... What you would call variety artists mm-hmm. that came, they brought a bunch of different skills. And Jerry, I mean, the, Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. Jerry the truth Lewis. is, you yeah. know, I, I think storytelling, well done, is a big skill set. 
It's mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's a big skill set, and that sense of your your body, even yeah. if you don't move a lot, but being conscious of it, that's yeah. everybody's well served to mm-hmm. to to study movement. Right. So, instead of like sticking to what I was thinking, like. How do you think young people coming up now doing storytelling? Because they, you know, they might have been influenced by Robin Williams and maybe Richard Pryor, um, but they don't have that other generation back mm-hmm. from like the sixties and 70s. Well, even going back to Richard Pryor would be a stretch for young people now. The truth is, mm, right? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you th- I, <laughs> so. How do you think that's going to influence the storytellers coming up, do you think? Well, I, I think with the storytellers coming up, watching storytellers who are present now, right. the, the elders. Right. Uh, you lost. Yes. <laughs> yeah, somehow. They, 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 somehow they, that happened. Yeah, somehow. Uh, that they can observe and see how it's been done. See, uh, see the tools that, that have been used right. uh, that we use because we borrowed it from those that came before us and you know so they don't they don't have um, moms maybe to look at or they don't have Red Fox or they don't have Richard Pryor but um, but but then on the other hand they, they could <laughs> google it they could. <laughs> you know but will they or uh, well we picked up on it not as saying, oh, I want to, I want to do that. It just we absorbed it. Right, just part of it. Just absorbed it, and it came out. Yeah. Like I mentioned about, you know, the particular story that I hear, the, the character in the story is says something, and it, to me, it sounded. Uh, it actually was pointed out to me one time, that wow, when you did that, it sounded so much like uh, Jimmy Durandy, and it was like a light bulb went on and said, yeah, it did. <laughs> and so all the subconscious stuff that comes into us. When we're observing a, a wonderful piece of art, you know, somebody, some talent, yeah. you know, and um, it just sticks with us. You know, the Jonathan Winters stuff, you know, sticks with us. You know, I, I had a sense when I, I mean, I really started to do this when I was 25 or 26. I had done a bunch of different things and I was mm-hmm. performing, but I was like, I think I'm going to try, I'm going to call myself a storyteller. Um, and I had a sense. I can't be good at this till I'm 40. I, because I think that you've got to have a certain amount of experience and you've got to have your own voice. And I think you just need to kind of get beat up a little bit so you have a... Because you're talking about the human condition and you can be brilliant. It's like... A, a, and you see like a lot of brilliant musicians when they're 23, 24. They play really fast and, you know, all that other stuff. But So I think that you could be a brilliant performer. But the kind of depth stuff doesn't happen until you've been doing it for a while and then as you do that you begin to look for the people like well who else is like who can I draw on and then I think when you become aware that there is this really broad notion of what storytelling uh, is about Um, I mean I remember I had heard Gene Shepard as a kid but it's like when I started to listen, when I was, I used to do uh, commentaries for All Things Considered, and they were doing a they were doing a uh, retrospective of, of Gene Shepard, and they sent me they wanted me to talk about it, and they sent me a bunch of recordings of his, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I do, like Gene Shepard 
tells stories. He would come on WOR radio at like 9.15 at night, and he would just tell stories about growing up. And they would go on for half an hour. And it was exactly what I was trying to do. Um, so then you say, oh my gosh, so I'm in this tradition. You realize you're in, you're, there, you're in this tradition, however broadly you might want to define it. And I think, I mean, I actually, at the, I emceed at the National Festival last year. I was really impressed with the quality of storytelling. Now, there weren't 23-year-olds, but there were, you know, 30 to 40-year-olds there who uh, deserved to be there. And I think it's because even as small as our storytelling world is, it has nurtured, I think it's nurtured a number of people. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I, that, was, that was heartening. You know the rest mm-hmm. of the culture is going to hell, but that was that that <laughs> moment was was was. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you two meet? Well, he picked me up in a bar. <laughs> Almost did. <laughs> Actually, when I came to town, um, I was I was I was looking around, and I heard about there these there was this group called the Sidewalk Storytellers, um, which was him and another uh, a couple other people. They were doing uh, kind of creative. They were doing uh, story theater for for kids. And uh, is this with Milbury Birch? No, 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 no. Milbury came in later. Yeah. Uh, I mean, was, no, just shortly after that. Yeah, this was uh, Marilyn Maiden and uh, Spocky Davis. Yeah, who is a yeah. puppeteer. So yeah. I called him up, and, and Len had this seat of the pants arts organization, Providence Inner City Arts, a bunch of hippies, and yeah. they would do all this stuff, and they had a Renaissance Fair. It wasn't a Renaissance Fair. It was just a the bunch Florentine of, Fair. It was it was free beer for the artists. So twenty five bucks a day sitting out in the hot sun. Yeah, I was. So I was in. Uh, and then I got invited to that storytelling. The New England Storytelling Center started. I got invited, so I said, "Can I?" Didn't know Len very well, so I said, "Can I bring a friend?" And uh, we drove up there. It was Lee Ellen Marvin and all those people, Judith yeah. Black and Jay, and all the, they were forming this storytelling center at Leslie College. And uh, they gave us a lobster dinner. And both yeah. of us were like, "Well, this is good." <laughs> yeah, yes. That's we met Susan Klein. Okay. Yeah. There, yeah. Yeah. Went up there when Bill first came to Providence. That that festival that he talked about, the Florentine Fair. We'd been doing it with this nonprofit arts organization that I was part of. We'd been doing it for a few years, and he and his wife came to that festival. When they first moved into the town, they saw it, and his wife said, "Next year you're going to perform here." And yeah, we didn't know anybody. We were feeling lonely, and she's like, "Next year we're going to know all these people." Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, he yeah. performed there the following year. Yeah. Nice. And um, uh, so we've been friends on and off ever since. <laughs> we've been friends ever since. We started working together, and uh, Bill has two two sons, and I've got two daughters, and uh, so we. But I know that didn't it? Parents at the time. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah. not over yet, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah they went to, same, went to the same school. So, yeah, Len and I. And, you know, we started doing performing together. And we have a half dozen stories we do, and we love performing together. But it was more out of our friendship than it was out of some artistic thing we were trying to do. Yeah. yeah. But although I think we're also really conscious that, uh, I mean, you know... The, the issue of who we are as a people and all that stuff it's it's constantly changing it's and it's still really hard but I felt like I think both Len and I felt like us standing next together on stage was this was this was a statement in and of itself mm-hmm. no matter what yeah. we were saying and what year was this this is the 70s 
eighties, early eighties, eighty four, eighty four, something like that. Yeah, we drove down to um, Jonesboro. Eighty was that eighty two? Maybe it might have been eighty one. Eighty one, eighty two, yeah. Uh, eighty one or eighty two, we drove down to Jonesboro for the first time. It was like seventeen hours in a car, and you got to know each other really well. Then. Yeah, yeah. we're lucky we made it down there. Yeah, we were lucky. <laughs> it's a back. long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just leave so that we, alone. We drove down and back, and we went down together a few times in the yeah. early eighties and stuff. And then uh, we started performing there. And um, well, actually. We talked our way out of the ghost story stage without being invited. Onto <laughs> it at the national at the national storytelling festival. It was all really loose back then. It yeah. was and uh, the ghost stories were in the uh, graveyard. Yes, and oh, right. and we would by that time there was a party down the street at Gary the Potters and uh, what's her name? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. and so we kind of crashed that party, and all the storytellers were there, so we got to know them, and then. The next night, there was a. We were up there, kind of backstage at uh, at the ghost storytelling, and someone said, "Who's next?" And we said, "We are." And they were like, "Okay." We did meet I Dodie Walker. Meet I Dodie Walker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, it was a lot looser. Oh yeah, it was. It was. I remember the first time being in a tent with maybe six, eight hundred people in a tent, and everybody's real listening to the story. And I had an apple, and I was in the back of the tent, and I went like this, crunch. It was so loud. It, I mean, it was like that's how quiet the tent was. Yeah. I had to step outside the tent to see an apple. It was like, whoa. That's when I realized, holy mackerel. Yeah. This is really something yeah. to be in a tent like that. I remember the first time I saw Jay O'Callaghan. He performed at a school in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And I took my, my daughter. She was probably three or four. She was a good listener. Even then, she was really good listener. We sat in the back, and there was maybe 200, 300 kids sitting on the floor. And Jay told stories. And it was like, once again... Could hear a pin drop. I was yeah. like, "Oh, man, this is this is it. This is it." It's yeah. great. Yeah, I kind of liken Jay Callahan to Hans Christian Andersen with his fairy tales, mm. and I yeah. kind of liken you to Danny Kay. <laughs> <laughs> a little wackier. <laughs> well, you know, when I first started doing this, I went to the State Arts Council. I was living in Rhode Island, and I said, "I'm a storyteller," and they said, "Really?" and uh, yeah, it's going to be on your roster. And I don't think anyone ever asked them to be a storyteller before. Like, And so they said, well, give us a tape. So I literally went home. I got a tape recorder and I had the story. It was Boomer and the Fast Sooner Hound. I got an Arbuthnet anthology of children's literature. And I had the book in front of me in case I forgot the story. Mm-hmm. And I made a tape and they were like, okay. And I was in the school the next week. But it's, <laughs> it's like yeah. there, there were no rules. But the woman, Jane Mahoney, remember Jane? Yeah. Who's, she says, well, you know, there's this storyteller this guy up in Massachusetts maybe you should go talk to him that's what you want to do and uh, it was Jay so I called him up this was the fall of 81 fall of 80 and I drove up to his house Joe was probably Jay was probably 40 maybe maybe he was probably maybe 38 39 yeah. but he seemed like the eyes of age to me you know at that point and he was just trying to figure it out too Yeah, you know and he was like good idea 
<laughs> go ahead. I came home and said, Gino Callahan says I should do it, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> Pretty weird. So, Bill, um, you've recorded a ton of material, something like over 30 CDs. Yeah, which is seven maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. And some, most of it's your own material. Right. But then you have pop-out works, like the Carl Sandburg CD. Yeah. And I'm going to let it shine. Yeah. What, what made you do those projects? Well, I mean, uh, every one of them has an individual story behind it. You know, the, the uh, Sandberg CD, I, and I feel a real kinship to Sandberg. I think part of its Midwestern roots. I always loved his language. Um, and I love those stories. They're just so weird. And uh, I was talking with Angela about it. Angela Lloyd? Angela Lloyd, and, and I knew Carol did them, and Angela said, well, you want to do a recording? I was like, sure. So that's how this, the Freedom Songs album was, it's been 30 years this year, this this spring. Um, it's an amazing CD. I love yeah. it. Um, we used to, uh, I, so before I did this, I actually was a nonviolent trainer. That was the only serious job I ever, I, really? I, I had, I was on the staff person with American Friends Service Committee, and I was very involved in anti-nuke work from 77 to 81 during the whole nuclear freeze movement. I was training people for civil disobedience. I was also doing uh, conflict resolution stuff in the schools. And I, at college, the one guy, the guys I studied the most were Gandhi and King. Uh, and so, and I went to spend some time down at the King Center in Atlanta and hung out with those singers. Um, I mean, Reverend Kirkpatrick and Walter Fauntroy, Marion Barry was down there and Hosea Williams and all those guys. And it was just, you know, kind of a religious experience for me. And then when the, um, there were, there was this lobbying to make a Martin Luther King Day and there was all this pushback, we started having sings at our house singing those songs Lenny came mm -hmm. a bunch of people came um, and every time we did it just the house kind of rose up off the so I said you know what I want to try my fear was and it's kind of borne out is that I didn't want King's birthday to become a black holiday I thought it should be our holiday I thought that that white folks need to recognize and honor what you know, black people have done and been through and how this is part of their heritage too. So that was my impetus for doing it. Oh, okay. Um, and then uh, I said, and I didn't want it to be fancy. I, I, I mean, I didn't want to make it highly produced. I just wanted people singing so that you would sing along. Um, mm. And I, <laughs> I called up, uh, I was calling up the people I knew who did it and I, I knew Guy Carawan who's out of the Highlander Center, a guy was, he came from California, but he got very involved in the civil rights movement, was responsible for him. He was one of the people responsible for making We Shall Overcome, like, what it was, and the white guy, very sensitive, did a lot of song collecting in the Georgia Sea Islands, in South Carolina, uh, St. John's Island. And he said, well, I'll come, but you should have some of the original voices. I said, what? He said, yeah, and he gave me a list of all these, the SNCC singers, you know, mm -hmm. the freedom singers from the from SNCC and and all these heavies. And I called them up and almost to a person, they were like, yeah, I'll come. Wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, 
we took out a second mortgage on a house. We were, it was a really stupid thing to do in many ways. And then when we got there, everybody got there in this retreat center, I realized how much baggage, how much story was there in that room. So it was, uh, um, yeah. So the, what you hear on the recording is this thing that's happening right there. And it just, you know, the fools rush in. Uh, uh, and yeah, that was one good thing I did. Yeah, it's a great album. Yeah, it's it a is. great it really album. Is. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You so, can't help but sing with it. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's what it was you for. It's exactly. not about you hit the listen to these people. It's just I want mm -hmm. you to know. People ought to know these songs. You ought to carry them with us. Mm -hmm. Dan Zanes does a similar thing. He's got. He's actually got a. Call by um, Carl Sandberg song bag. Yes, I know he does. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah, I, yeah. I really really like that, and mm -hmm. he's he's done some of the, the spirituals yeah. as well, and yeah. freedom songs, which yeah. is how I came across them because we would listen to those CDs with my kids, and then it was like, oh, it's Carl Sandberg. I keep this name keeps coming up, and and then when I saw your CD, I was but like, you know the stories that happened there that weekend too. That those three or four days we were there <clears> because a lot of those people um, who had been. 22-year-old SNCC field organizers or 22 or 3, 20, they said they hadn't seen each other for 10, 12 years, 15 years. Yeah. And they got together and um, it was, I think those of us who weren't part of that movement were, it was like we felt kind of like we were on hallowed ground to be there mm. with those people, you know. Do you think you'll ever turn that into a story and tell the story of that or...? I mean, it sounds uh, like it's an important I, I story. I know. Maybe I should. I, 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 uh, I think a story with that, I always wrestle with how much I want to make myself the center of something like that. Um, but the story wouldn't be about you. It would be about no. the people and their yeah. stories. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I do. Mm -hmm. There's some... I, I probably should think about it. There's sometimes I sing uh, Welcome Table and... Um, Welcome Table and This Little Light of Mine are companion songs. You can sing both at the same time and I'll have the audience do that and then I'll talk about actually <laughs> this is one of the stories I remember because when we first I'd been trying to track Cordell Reagan down and I finally tracked him down we were out in Los Angeles I mean we were out in the north of San Francisco and I called this phone number and he said well this kid answered said well he's here but you probably want to talk this this is my dad's house I want to talk to him and Willie Peacock was here Peacock and it's like oh my god I've been looking for him so Remember that? Do you remember, remember going over there? Yeah. <laughs> was it in Oakland? I think it was, it was in, in Oakland. It was, it was Oakland. tough. Yeah, it was a tough part of Oakland. We went over there. I remember Lenny said to me, because I talk a lot, we were about to go in the door. He said, hey, Bill. I said, what? He said, don't talk too much, okay? I was like, okay, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you should talk Did you more. get involved in the Civil Rights Uh Well, movement, or? I was... Uh, when I get uh, I got drafted um, in 68 and I was in the service for two years um, and when I was uh, and I, I got out in 70 and I I took a, what they call a European discharge so okay. I got out over in Europe and I stayed in Amsterdam for another 10 months before I came back mm-hmm and then when I came back, things were still, you know, I think Nixon had just got impeached. Or the well, that was around 73. But 73. It was around that time. Nixon yeah. was still in office and stuff yeah. like that. There was a lot going on right. here in, in Rhode Island and across the country. Um, but I was 
they're in the uh, early 60s, like 65 and stuff. I was still in high school and living up in North Providence. So um, I wasn't, I didn't go, I wasn't a freedom rider or anything like that. It was right, right, just right, the, right. the age difference, you know. Right. But some cousins that were older than I and friends were older than I were down with the buses and all that period. But I wasn't actually down there doing that. I was doing what I could do, keep keep my head on straight, especially when I was in the service. Because when I went into service, it was the first time I went. I went to the, I went to the South, and I was in um, I stationed in South Carolina. It was a big awakening for me yeah. to go down to be in the South and growing up here, and then being down there with just open racists, which there there was racism here and there was prejudice here and stuff, but you dealt with it. And most of the time, you just had to, um, you know, you fought, you, you know, you straighten somebody out. Right. Uh, down south, it was like straightening, you know, it was a full-time job trying to straighten people out. And uh, so there's a real, um, I remember being in boot camp, and it was April 4th, and uh, these kids, one of some of the soldiers, white soldiers, came running by saying, they killed them, they killed them. They said, who are they talking about? They killed him. It's Martin Luther King. Oh, my he God. He got shot. And, and here, I'm in the same uniform oh, as these kids who are geez. running, or these soldiers who are running by, jumping up in joy, that they killed him. And who did they kill? And then we found out, and the base went down on lockdown and stuff like that. It was like... Oh, I bet, yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell am I doing in this uniform? This guy's the same uniform I'm in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I had... You know, um, my people that I, you know, Stokey Carmichael, uh, Rap Brown, the Panthers were, were happening. Um, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali said, hell no, I ain't going. And had all these, you know. And I suppose if I was a little little older, when I got out of high school, I probably would have went to Canada instead of go, getting drafted. Yeah, I was trying to get into college, but... My, they drafted me before I get in, get accepted to, right. to, to school, and so then I went off for uh, two years. Fortunately, I was I didn't go to Nam. I was over in Germany for uh, two years or eighteen months. Yeah. You know, but you know the experience of being in the South and then going to Texas for training was pretty awakening. You know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't go. I didn't go there with. Uh, I didn't go there with, with uh, you know, I, I had my eyes open. I knew, you, you, know, know, you know, what I was walking into. You know, I think it's hard to, I, I look back on that period now, because I was at the very tail end in terms of my, my draft was a dra last draft that people got drafted. Um, so we all wrestled, we all had to wrestle with those questions um, about the legitimacy of of the war and what we were going to do, you know, and I, um, I registered as a CO. I didn't have to go through the whole rigmarole, and then I began to think I shouldn't have even registered. I just should have burned the draft card and, and refused. And there, there's, but there are all those fine Aren't things. You a Quaker? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, well, I became a Quaker during high school because I was trying because I was trying to figure out what my attitude towards this was. Right. And I started to go to Quaker meeting. Uh, uh, I was raised Methodist, but. So, and that, 
that analysis of everything had a very, I mean, to some extent with the storytelling, there was, I think the storytelling thing that happened, I see it as kind of a combination of avant-garde theater, of work in the small theater space, of the, the strain of the librarian storyteller, and this folk stuff, uh, the traditional, that all kind of came together. And there was just a lot of us that were community artists, that we were community artists. We wanted to create art mm -hmm. to make a better community, to be political in a, in a really broad sense. Mm -hmm. I know that was my, and I, th mm -hmm. I think that was true of you mm -hmm. too. Like that was what Providence Center City mm -hmm. Arts was about. So, so you can't take that, yeah, you can't take our art out of that context. I don't yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always felt like that was an important, mm -hmm. and that came because of uh, the civil rights movement and the women's movement and the and the and the freedom movement and the environmental uh, thing. Uh, th those were all those are all part of what yeah. you know for mm -hmm. me. What my art came out of, mm -hmm. even if I'm being wacky. Yeah, yeah. Building community. Yeah, yeah. So and storytelling. Yeah. It's so yeah. powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's powerful. Yeah. yeah. So, Len, you don't have a ton of CDs, but you do have a ton of awards. <laughs> <laughs> you got an Outstanding Citizen Award, was one of them, from Provincetown. Um, as, and a Humanitarian Service Award from HEFA, as well as uh, National Storytelling Network Circle of Excellence. Yeah. Could you talk about how you got to those Outstanding Citizens and... and well, I guess it's just do, you know doing the work, uh, like I mentioned, building community, and um, uh, the awards. You know, they they came because I guess I was recognized by somebody for doing uh, you know doing the work, um, reaching out. I think storytelling allows me to be in the position to to uh, community maintenance. Um, Awaken, help people awaken themselves to the environment, to uh, the repression. Um, you know, uh, connecting with one another. I think probably that's what mostly was from because I, I I feel it's really important to connect age groups, uh, different ethnic groups, yeah. which I've always been around different ethnic groups, um, and the richness of it. Rhode Island is, and we have so many ethnic groups here in, in Rhode Island. Uh, you, uh, someone come from the outside may not see it, as, uh, but there's, we've got a whole spectrum here of the world. And to be able to uh, try to highlight some of those, those groups, and I think probably being part of Providence Inner City Arts, where we were an arts organization, community arts organization, where we could have an event where we could have in the Hmong community, the, uh, the Asian community, the Italian community, the black community, the Spanish community, and do an event where everybody's part of it right. was something that um, I look back at kind of how I was raised. I was raised in a real ethnic community, and so Providence in the City Arts was a, an organization that we were made up of, Armenians, Italians, Irish, uh, Puerto Rican, uh, Cape Verdeans, yeah, so we just when we had an event, we just everybody came to it, right. and I think some of these awards are a reflection, the of, reflection that. of that. Um, glad to receive these awards. Um, 
but you know, you get up in the morning, you do the same thing. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, you can. I so mean, I, I've worked at the uh, at the Smithsonian Discovery Theater and the Kennedy Center, but then I come home and I'm working in a cafeteria with milk on the floor. Yeah, yeah. and which is fine. I yeah. mean, you know, it just keeps you grounded to uh, what we do. Right, and uh, the work that we do is looking in somebody's face, looking in a child's eyes and telling stories, or an adult's eyes and telling a story. And you know, with theater, you have that. Well, they mentioned earlier about that wall. You know, yeah. there's always that wall. That the audience is over there, and there's this wall. But storytelling, it's straight up. I mean, it's it's you're this. Looking we're yeah. looking. We're all. You know, you're breathing, and I'm breathing. But you know, we're doing this because listening is. It, it, it's tough. Uh, they're working, you know. When you're telling stories to 200 kids, you're working because you're you're holding it all together. But they're working because, they, you know, they have to keep the sequence of the story together. Uh, the pictures of what they're making in their minds. The uh, and a lot of these kids have been raised on videos and TV yeah. and movies. They can backtrack to it, start it over again and stuff like. That. But they're they're really working hard. And so we, as a performer, we need to respect how hard they're working, and uh, with that respect, you know, we, we gel. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you think your experience as a, as a from your childhood being in that community was something that you wanted to bring with you when you started that organization? Uh, yeah, it was. It just worked that way, you know, because growing up with uh, with friends from different uh, ethnic groups. Uh, different communities um, it just you meet other friends friends of their friends and their friends are, mm. and then to pull something together like that where you have people on the stage and you have a Middle Eastern belly dancer and then followed by uh, an old Italian man playing the violin and mm. then you got Cape Verdean folklore dances then you got Portuguese folklore dances and then you have someone from Jamaica doing a fire dance oh, you know wow. Uh, it was those types of events that we could highlight uh, the different races that we have here and the talent yeah. and how well, you know, and plus, wherever we did an event, we always had food. So you had ethnic food. People oh, nice. had the Hmong community bringing in, you had the Puerto Rican bringing this, and you had people cooking this and that, and the smells. It reminded me a lot of growing up in my neighborhood where if I went to Peter Petrov's house, they were Bulgarian, so they, the food that they cooked something else. Then you went to Chucky and Anian's house and they were on me and they were cooking some shish kebab or something. And then you went to Paul Martin, they were Portuguese, they were cooking something different there, you know. And so Stephen Penton, they were Italian, they were cooking up something over there and the smells and hey, and it was like, so at many of these large events that we did, food was a big topic, a big part of it. Yeah. So people would come just to experience different foods. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, wasn't that great? And it only gets better with part two. Please come back for the next episode for more of the Bill and Lenny Show. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale myths and legends storyteller, send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, or on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Go check it out. 
Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are lots of other places you could be, and so I appreciate it, honestly. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. Simon out.